Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. I hope you guys have been enjoying the Just 10 series as much as I have, uh, especially last week when my mum preached on honour your father and mother. So if any of you felt particularly challenged or directly targeted, I'm right there with you. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's been a really great series so far. I've been loving it. And in fact, when I'm coming to do mine, I thought I would bring a visual aid to help you remember them. Now, when I was a kid, I actually managed to memorize all of the Ten Commandments. And even I can, you can test me on it as well. If you give me a number from one to ten, I'll tell you which commandment it is because of this visual aid. You can test me that later. Um, and I even brought like a little poster thing you can look at later if you want. And each of them is a different image, and that will help you remember which commandment is which. And mine is the second one. Mine is idolatry. So to remember idolatry, <laughs> it has this person bowing down to an idol, and you can see he makes the shape of a two. Yeah, exactly. So now whenever I hear two, I think, person bowing down, don't worship an idol. That's how I remember it. Hopefully that's how you remember it as well now that I've taught you that. And when I was memorizing the commandments as a kid, I kind of treated it like a checklist. And as a kid, that's pretty easy to go through and to think, I'm, I'm doing great as a Christian. Do not murder, check. I'm not murdering anyone. Do not commit adultery. I'm too scared to talk to girls, check. And then this one, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Check. I can quite easily say check. And when I was told that I was going to do one of the Ten Commandments, I was hoping that I was going to get a crime because I did criminology at university. I could give you a lecture on murder, but I'm doing idolatry. And at first I thought, idolatry, that's such an outdated commandment now. Like, I can see the importance of it back then, especially like if you think of the ancient Greeks and the statues and the temples and the deities they worshipped. Like, for example, if you wanted good rain for your crops, you would pray to Zeus, the god of rain and skies. If you wanted to find love, you would pray to the goddess Aphrodite. And it was, this was quite common and prolific back then. But nowadays, we don't really have that. Not really, anyway. It's not nearly as prolific. So how can we apply idolatry today? Well, the problem is that when they went to these statues and these temples, they would pray to these gods to get what they wished for. We do the same thing today. We pray to all of these different things. We worship all of these different things. Money, success, possession, sex, power. There's all these various idols in our culture that we worship. And much like those statues, we worship them to get, give us something that only God can give us. They take a priority in our heart that God should take the place of. And it's all built on a lie that they can satisfy us, that they can be our God and serve us, when actually we become enslaved to them. So, when I was given the talk about idolatry, I thought, well, what, how am I going to talk about idolatry? What do I need to do? Well, I think it's important for us to identify what is an idol, first of all, define that, then why is it bad, how does it work, so we can spot it, and then finally, the most important bit, how do we get rid of it? That's how we as a church should approach idolatry. So, first things first, how do we define an idol? 
Now, I can't get all the credit for this. I read a book called Counterfeit Gods. It's by Timothy Keller, so you know it's a good read. Um, and I highly recommend that book if you want to read more about idols. But in that book, it defines idolatry in a number of ways. I'm going to go through them quickly. So here they are in bullet points. Uh, so he's defined idol idols as anything more important to you than God. That's the, very, that's the very minimum baseline, right? Anything more important to you than God, that is an idol. There's no exceptions to that. And it becomes essential for your happiness, meaning in life, and identity than God. So let's, let's take an example. I would say social media. That's a really big idol. That's something I struggle with. Social media as an idol. It becomes a problem in our society, especially with things like eating disorders, anxiety, depression. It's caused all of these different problems because so many people are relying on it for their happiness, for their meaning in life, for their identity. Like, they'll look at these things and they'll look at an unrealistic lifestyle and want it. They'll see it as their identity is the it's their source of validation, right? It's when they turn to social media for these things, rather than God, that's when it becomes an idol, that's when it becomes harmful to them. And it often uses the phrase, if I have that, my life will be complete. If I have that, then I'll have meaning. If I have that, then I'll be significant, then I'll be secure. Again, when you look at uh, social media, it advertises, it, it glorifies this lifestyle, this kind of influence on people, and it's so unrealistic, especially when it becomes more important to them than God, like when they look to social media for their identity rather than God and what he says about them, which is far more important. And a really interesting thing, I didn't think about this, this came from the book, it, idolatry itself is the fundamental motivation for sinning. If you sin, you're putting something before God. You can use that for all of them, like, do not commit adultery. You are putting pleasure before the promise you made to God. When you steal something, you are putting your, your need for that possession before knowing that God will provide for you. All of these, you can really think about it, and it's interesting to actually go into more detail with, and I won't, but it's interesting to look at sin and think of it as something has become, something has come before God. And this is also an interesting thing. The idol, it's not necessarily evil. It only becomes evil when it becomes an idol, when it becomes your God. Again, I'll use social media because this is the big thing that every preacher goes on about social media, how evil it is. And every time they bring it up, you get a hmm, a very thoughtful hmm throughout the room, don't you? Right? But social media itself, there are benefits to it. Like, the Life Church Warrington Instagram account isn't evil. And all these, it's a great way for churches to connect with people. And I would say cat videos aren't exactly evil either. Like, social media itself isn't evil. It's when it becomes an idol, when we put it on that position, that pedestal, that's when it becomes an issue. As Ezekiel chapter 14 verse 3 says, men had set up idols in their hearts and put up wicked stumbling blocks. That's how it describes it, as a wicked stumbling block. But the, more, the most dangerous thing an idol can do is it can turn us away from God. Like, if I use social media again, this is the final time I'll use it as an example, but um, it is purposefully designed to hold your attention, and it enslaves you for hours on end. Don't you think it, it feels like being a slave at times, doesn't it? You're just there for hours and hours, and you're not really yourself, and it distracts you from spending a second with God, and that is the most dangerous thing an idol can do for us. Jonah 2, verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. 
So there we go. This commandment is to stop us from stumbling, from turning away from God. But it's a little more than that because actually this commandment, God takes very, very personally. Because I showed you verse 4, do not make any graven image, and we get that. That's our responsibility. But then you go to verses 5 and 6, and you get to see God's view of idolatry. So verses 5 to 6 of Exodus 20, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children, the entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. It's very personal to God. And that's the interesting thing because we see commandments as just a set of rules, a checklist, isn't it? And I think the fact that it's called commandments doesn't help. But actually, the Ten Commandments were given as a covenant. It was a promise between the Israelites and God. These were the terms and conditions for having a relationship with him. This was the terms and conditions for him to become the God of the Israelites and the Israelites to be his people. This was a part of a relationship. And part of that relationship was not worshipping other gods. And throughout the Bible, we see that God's relationship with the Israelites and with us, therefore, is is described as a marriage. Like, if you look at Isaiah 54, uh, it describes God as a husband, calling us back as if we were a deserted and distressed wife. If you look at Isaiah 62, it describes how God will rejoice over us like a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. The best example of this, and I won't go through the whole chapter, but this is like homework, you could say, is Ezekiel 16. And this whole chapter describes, it's a visceral description of how Jerusalem's idolatry to other gods and false idols was like prostitution. It was like, it describes how God basically loved Jerusalem, clothed them, showered them with gifts, but then Jerusalem would turn away and it would go to all these other deities. It would give them the gifts and all the affection. And in fact, all of these idols it describes never gave that affection back. It was a one-sided relationship. So worshipping an idol is so much more than turning away from God. It is a form of idolatry against God. So yes, it causes a bit of jealousy. And nowhere is this better expressed than when the Israelites committed idolatry. And this was actually um, Exodus 32. This was just after the commandments had been given, like just after the commandments had been given. If you look at Exodus chapter 32, verse 1 to 8, I'm going to go through the whole thing. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down and molded it into the shape of a calf. Then the people saw it. They they exclaimed, oh Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf. Then he announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry. They don't don't describe what the pagan revelry is, but I think you can infer what that is. The Lord told Moses, quick, go down the mountain. 
your people whom you brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. How quickly they have turned away from the way I commanded them to live. They have melted down gold and made a calf, and they have bowed down and sacrificed to it. They are saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Going back to that image of a husband and a wife, this is like they would just taken their vows and the husband had been cheated on their honeymoon. That's what like, this is like if you look back on that image. So this commandment is more than just banning statues and temples. This is teaching us how to love God, how to know him, which is why it's called how to know God, this preach, and how to build a relationship with him. It questions all of us, who do we worship in a culture that is designed to distract us away from God? Now, there are so many different idols in our life. Like I said earlier, anything and everything can be an idol. So I'm going to go through three different lies that idolatry tells us so that we can recognize it and know why we turn away from idolatry. The first one is that there is a dissatisfaction of idolatry, a dissatisfaction. Our God provides us with living water that satisfies, but convenient idols offer us salt water. Dissatisfaction is something our culture tries to sell to us constantly. I tried to look up a figure of how many adverts you see in a day. No one can really estimate it. It's going to be so many. And think of how many there are, and they are all designed to make you want even more, to make you discontent in life. And this is an extra little bit of homework if you want. This is less theology and more fun. But if you want, you can look up American infomercials, and I think it's called First World Problems. And it's this montage of the start of every American infomercial, which will be like black and white, and it will be a person struggling to do something and how hard their life is. And then, of course, they'll advertise the product. But if you just cut it at the, at the black and white scene, at the part where they're struggling, you just get a video of people who are useless at everything. You get a video of people who are, like, can't crack an egg into a bowl and they look so frustrated. You can't like, put the socks on their feet and they can't open doors. Like, it's so funny to watch. But that's what adverts do. They try and convince us that we are discontent and that we need more. And it's not a small business either. In 2022, the ad revenue in the UK reached $48 billion. That's roughly 40 billion pounds. This is a multi-billion idol-making industry. And our culture tells us that materialism, possessions, they will satisfy us. That possessions will make our life easier. That success will bring true happiness. But that is a lie of an idol. It made me think of a quote Jim Carrey once said. I hope everybody could get rich and famous and will have everything they ever dreamed of so they will know that it's not the answer. A vivid image that J. John gave was that idols are like salt water. We thirst for water. But when we drink this salt water, it never satisfies us. It, like, it burns the throat. It's bitter. But it makes us even more thirsty. And then we turn to even more salt water. And it continues to not satisfy us. And it's just unrelenting as it continues. We become even more thirsty. We drink even more salt water. It keeps going. As Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10 says, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. Now, this refers to money only, but you could turn this into any idol, success, power, all of these different things. If you love that thing, you will never have enough of it. Never. And what I found, I'm going to turn back to the golden calf for a second, just for a second, because what fascinated me was, how did they get the gold for the calf? 
the Israelites had been slaves for generations. How on earth did they get the gold to make themselves an idol? Well, if you look at Exodus, you'll find that God says that when they left Egypt, that if they asked the Egyptians for gold and silver, it would be handed to them. Just like that. It was a promise God made to them that they would be provided with gold and silver and precious things if they asked the Egyptians. And of course, this happens, and this is why they have gold, which then makes it that they have made God's provision into an idol, that they wouldn't have had that gold and silver without God, but they're turning to his provision rather than with God. But why do we keep turning to salt water? Because we long for fresh living water. We want to turn to the right source, the source that God can provide for us. So why do we keep turning to salt water? I mean, it makes sense for people who've never tasted that living water. But we as Christians, we know that water. So why do we keep turning to salt water? Well, it's because the salt water is more convenient for us. Salt water is what the world will continually offer us. That's what the world offers us more and more every day. And convenience is not a bad thing in theory. Like, it's great that things have less hassle, things are easier. But we've become so reliant on convenience, we want it over quality. We will take what's fake over what's authentic. We will take it because it's quicker, it's cheaper, it's easier, it's more convenient. But it can never beat the authentic thing. It can never beat the real thing. And because an idol does not have the moral demands our father does, they are a convenient alternative to a God who is not convenient. And a good way of describing an idol like this is Psalm 115, verses 3 to 8, which goes into detail about why an idol is more convenient than God. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. It is easier to serve a God that cannot speak, who cannot command us to do anything. It's easier to serve a God who can't see all that you do, who can't hear all that you say, who cannot take action and cannot feel. But our God can. Our God can speak into our lives. He can see all that you do and hear all that you say. Jesus came down to earth with hands that could feel and walked among us. That's what separates them from an idol. And putting all our trust in an idol, as you can see in verse 8, makes us more like that idol. Putting all our trust in God, therefore, makes us more like him. We are a creation made in his image. So by following and trusting in God and worshipping him, we become more like him. We become more righteous. By worshipping earthly things, we choose a God that is controllable and convenient, but also God that enslaves us and never satisfies us. Our God is not convenient and our God cannot be controlled. So, the second lie, the selfishness of idolatry. Our God calls us to be aligned with his perfect will. Self-centered idols turn us into flawed gods. Idolatry creates a controllable God. I just mentioned that earlier. But we also want a God who compromises, especially in our culture. Idolatry can mean putting our own interests before God's, when our desires and our plans do not quite align with his. And instead of respecting the boundaries and the conditions placed in love for us, we want a God who will compromise for us. Now, we live in an individualized society, 
and are told we have the right to do anything we want, or that we should at least have the right to do anything we want, even at the expense of other people around us. But we as human beings are born sinners. We are born to do whatever we want with no restrictions, and to do that would lead to harm, even death. We want there to be compromises, to be free to do whatever we want. But we're not really free. Your actions aren't really free. There are consequences to the things you do, to the things you say. As 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 to 24 says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. This verse in particular refers to sexual immorality. But again, it can revert to so many different idols, chasing idols like power, success, etc. Without the consideration for what God says is to worship an idol. If you don't consider what God says and what he's commanded us to do, then you'll use sinful means to get the things you want. Take power, for instance. Without God and what he says, you could take power through corruption or you could take pleasure through immorality. When you remove God out of the, the picture, it becomes completely and utterly selfish and destructive. We frown upon anything that tells us no. And God being an ultimate authority on things means that he tells us what is right or wrong, and he will say no to the bad things we worship. But people want to ignore that. They want a God who will compromise and do whatever we tell him. But our God does whatever pleases him and can never be controlled. That itself is so countercultural to today that people want to worship something that is compromising, but Jesus expects us to worship him and are called not to confirm, conform to this world or earthly things. Now, the best example of this I could find in the Bible was Jonah. Now, everyone who's heard of Jonah knows of the big whale, but um, more than that, he, he went forward with a form of idolatry where he put his own desires before God's. He was told, go into Nineveh and preach the good news. And once he was told that, he went to Tarshish. He literally went in the opposite direction to where God told him to go. And he, believe, he did that because he believed Nineveh was worth punishment. He believed it was worth death and banishment from God alone. But that's not what God was going to do. That's not what God had planned. It was different from what Jonah had. And because of that, Jonah ran away. And then you can, you can see his heart and where his heart was in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And this was after God had basically saved Nineveh and they had all turned away from their ways, repented and believed in God. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Bit much. He would rather die than God show compassion. That shows where his heart is. He would rather follow his own desires rather than what God wanted for the people. He was compassionate and gracious. And he threw that in God's face like it was an insult. His fury was misplaced and silly. As we see what God says to him next, but the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? That struck me. Is it right for you to be angry? Our reaction to God's plans should not be met with anger. To be in a relationship with God is to trust his plans are good and righteous. Idols will disagree. 
Idols will disagree with God on a number of things. Sometimes it means that we have to give up the things we like for the things we love. But what is the thing that you love? Is it a God or is it an idol? And a great way to see what idols we have is to check our hearts, is to see what takes priority in our lives and where we compromise in our faith. Now, I talked about possessions earlier. We did possessions with do not steal and do not covet, how we can stop ourselves from making that an idol by giving uh, generously, by tithing being the only minimum, like to make sure God comes first. So I won't go into all of that. But I will give an example of what it's like to put God's will first. And that is, of course, through the best role model we can find, Jesus. So this is, um, this is after the Last Supper with Jesus, and he's gone into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And he's, he knows that he's about to be taken away and crucified soon. And this is what it says, Matthew 26, verse 38 to 39. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus did not want to die. Like us, as human beings, we don't want to suffer. If at all possible, he wanted this suffering, this cup, to be taken away from him. He prayed this at least, at least three times. It could have been more. But as well as praying three times for his suffering to be removed, he prayed three times that not as I will, but as you will. That he put God's will before his own. We are called to do his will, which means being selfless with our desires, with other people. Like it says, love the fa- your father with, ah, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and then love other people as you would love yourself. We need to put the will of God before the will of an idol, because when they conflict, we could become pretty selfish. Now, this is the final lie, the final lie I'm going to talk about, and this is the unfulfillment from idolatry. Our God gives us access to the divine, but cheating idols divert us away from him. This commandment is quite fascinating to me because it implies that we as human beings worship, that we are made to worship, we are designed to worship and to have access to him. But it also means that we can worship the profane, the mundane. We can worship things like our lust and our greed and put in them as our gods. We are built to worship. We just need to worship the right thing. We need to worship God. And worshiping the wrong thing is unfulfilling. It simply cannot do what God, our Father, and Creator provides for us. Who knows us better than our Creator? And there are so many different things nowadays that promise fulfillment, that promise purpose and meaning. Think of all these new spiritual practices we have with crystals and tarot cards and astrology. They all promise fulfillment and enlightenment, but ultimately they don't deliver. Outside of spirituality too, I find it quite interesting that most of my generation are agnostic. Most of them, they're open to the idea of a higher power, but they don't want to take a side. And I kind of find it interesting that they have this idea that there could be no higher power, that there could be a God out there, but it has absolutely no impact on their lives whatsoever. It doesn't change anything about how they live at all. But that's the thing. They are so ignorant to the idea that they worship at all and to the things that they worship. And this reminded me of Paul in Athens as he's preaching to these people in Acts chapter 17, verse 22 to 23. 
Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. And he continues to preach the good news of Jesus to them. Some like to think that all religions lead to the same outcome, right? And this is something I've heard more and more, especially at university where it's such a diverse blend of cultures and people, that there's this very comforting belief that if you believe in a God, then you're okay. That it's the same thing. You'll have the same outcome. But it's just not true. It's not. I wish it could be the case, but it's not the case. Because there are so many different key ideas and principles in religions that conflict with each other directly. They contradict with each other. You need to believe in the right things, in the worship, the right God. Any God isn't the same thing. It needs to be the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Moses, the God who came down to earth and sacrificed himself for us. That's the God we need to worship. Now, I mentioned uni before. I do have a story from uni. Um, back when I was at the Christian Union, we did flyering quite a lot. I hated flying, especially. I am quite a shy and nervous person. I don't like, I mean, I don't mind public speaking as much because all of you want to be here. But when I go to a street or somewhere, it's a different thing entirely because people have places to be. They want to do things. I don't want to be there and offer them something to take. You face so much rejection in flyering. And one of the things we did in Freshers' Week was we went outside of campus and we were giving out these flyers and we were telling people about the Christian Union, about what we believe in Jesus. And this guy comes up to us and he says, are you guys Christians? We said, yes, of course we are. And he replied, I love Jesus. I thought, excellent, this is great. Because if you've done flyering before, that never happens. You never have someone coming up saying, Oh, I love Jesus too. You never get that, ever. So I thought, fantastic, great. And we talked a bit more, and he was giving me, like, um, kind of deep history about, like, um, God and Jesus and all that stuff. And it was kind of off a little bit, but I didn't know enough to correct him on it. So I just kind of nodded along and had a conversation, and I made sure to give him some of my beliefs as well. But the more he talked, the more it didn't seem right. And then he told us this one thing. He told us this one thing, and then the whole, like, mood shifted. He then told us Jesus was never crucified or died, and he argued this to us. I was a little taken aback, because we were doing so well at that point. But we kind of tried to show him, oh, uh, well, no, this is what we believe. And we showed him the verse as well, and he was saying, no, 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 that's not what happened. And he was adamant. The more we tried to kind of explain that and be gentle towards the answer, the more angry he became, the more adamant he became. No, 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 that's not right. And the more we tried to show him about the Bible, he just, he didn't want to hear it. It was like he was evangelizing to us. And in fact, what I learned was this guy was a Muslim. And the thing is, I didn't realize Muslims actually believe Jesus and what he did. But the problem is that while I was talking about Jesus... And he was talking about Jesus. We both love Jesus, but we were talking about two different people. The Jesus in my mind was the son of the living God who came down to earth, who was crucified, and because of that, we were free from sin. The Jesus he knew was only a prophet. He was never God, and that he was never crucified, which completely changes not just Jesus, but the relationship with God. Without that happening, we don't get to have the relationship with God we have now. 
So while, yes, you can argue so many religions have so many similarities, there are key differences that change the way we see them. And in fact, there are many different ideas out there about who God is, who Jesus is. And we need to cling to and worship the true God rather than an idol. As Jesus said, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except him, making him the only way. That's who we need to worship. We need to stay strong from that, not just from different religions and religious practices that aren't quite right, but also these spiritual practices and these things that promise so much to us but can never do what God can do for us. So, that kind of ends the how, we are, how, how it works part. <laughs> um, but then the important thing is, how do we remove an idol? How do we get rid of that from our life? Well, like I kind of said earlier, there is, if something like possessions is your idol, then giving away generously, making sure it doesn't have a hold on your heart, is a good thing to do. Fasting is also a really good thing to do, especially with something like social media. If you spend too much time on it, Maybe it's a good idea to fast from it, spend a day away from it, spend like, have a time limit on how much time you spend. But as well as removing an idol, that's only step one. Step one is dethroning the idol. Step two, because we are built to worship, is to put Jesus back on that throne. We need to replace that idol with God. It's, it's a good thing to get rid of the idol, but you need to replace it because we are built to worship. So that's what we need to do, to spend time with God, to build a relationship, to grow in character and to know him. Because that's what worship is. Worship is what we adore, what we prioritize, what has the place in our hearts and what do we love more than anything. So this was a lot, I get that. It was very challenging to me as well. But what I want us to do is I'm going to finish in prayer. And what I'm going to ask God to do is to identify the idols in our hearts for us. Because while God is the person who sees our hearts, sometimes we miss things. Even in our own hearts, we miss them. We lie to ourselves more than we think. So I'm going to encourage us to pray to God to, first of all, identify the idols in our lives that we need to remove, but also to bring his presence to us so that we can find God and put him first, that we can find the time to do that. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarrington.com.